at long last, the promised advent of Ulysses. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk almost always through comedy with some interpolated issues and episodes stacked into the deck. We have come clear down to the bottom of the 26th canto of Inferno. We are nearing the bottom of hell itself, and we have been playing around the notion of Ulysses, or Odysseus, showing up in the poem. And in fact, this is the episode where it happens. We are at canto 26, lines 85 through 142. Ulysses' long speech. But before we get there, let me just give you the lay of the land, how this is all going to work. What I'd like to do is I'd like to back up and read into Ulysses' speech. So I'm going to back up to line 25 of Canto 26 and read completely in and through Ulysses' monologue, his gigantic monologue. Then after that, I want to talk through in this episode of the podcast some of the associated problems with this speech, some of the interpretive knots, some of the pieces that may be a little hard to understand. And then we're going to have two more episodes on Ulysses' speech. We're going to have the case against Ulysses and the case for Ulysses, just as we did with Francesca and other great sinners of hell. So this episode is mostly about pulling apart the knots in Ulysses' speech, which is actually hard to do because it's hard to pull apart the knots without having an interpretation. The speech demands interpretation, which is why it is the most remarked upon and written about passage in all of comedy. More scholarship has been expended on the end of Canto 26, Ulysses' big monologue, than any other single part of comedy. Let's get to it. Let's start back at line 25 in the Canto and bring it forward to Ulysses. Let's say there's a rustic fellow lounging about on a hillside in the season when the thing that illuminates the world conceals his face the least from us. At the moment when the fly gives way to the mosquito, he sees the fireflies in the valley below where he perhaps plows his field or tends his vineyard. The eighth pouch was resplendent with just that many little fires when I got to fully see it up at the point where I could peer down into its depths. As the one who got his vengeance with the bear saw the chariot of Elijah take its departure, the horses lifting themselves erect on their way up into the heavens so that he could not follow them with his eyes, except he could see way up there a solitary flame like a little cloud rising up and up. Just in such a way, each flame moved itself along the maw of the ditch. Not a single one gave away its theft, even though each flame had a center inside it. I straightened up on the bridge to see better. Had I not grabbed hold of a rocky crab, I would have fallen in without being pushed. My guide saw how the pit grabbed my attention and said, The spirits are inside those fires. Each one is clothed with what's incinerating him. My master, I replied, hearing you say that makes me more certain. <laughs> I'd already considered that such was the case, so I already wanted to ask you, 
Who's in that fire that arrives so split at the top, so much so that it seems to be rising from the pyre where Ateocles and his brother were laid down? He replied to me, There inside are tormented Ulysses and Diomedes. They're paired up in the vendetta that results from the wrath they incurred. Down inside that flame, they bewail the ploy of the horse that opened the gates from which issued the seed of the noble Romans. Caught inside, they lament their art by which, even dead, Daedemia still pours out her sorrow for Achilles. They also settle the score over the palladium they stole. If they were able to speak in those flames, Master, I, I plead with you a lot to make it so, and even plead again by pleading it a thousandfold. Don't make me wait here a bit until the flame gets closer to us. You see how I lean out with desire toward them. And he to me, your prayer is loaded with value. Thus, I accede to it. But see that your tongue is bridled. Let me do the talking. I understand exactly what you want. Still, because they're Greeks, they might be scornful of what you might say. When the flame got close enough where it seemed to my guide the right time and place, I heard him speak in this manner. Oh, you who are actually two inside one fire. If I merited anything from you both while I lived, if I merited anything from you, whether great or small, when in the world above I wrote my high verses, then hang back here for a moment. And one of you tell where, lost by his own hand, he met his death. The bigger horn of the ancient flame began to quiver, murmuring as if it were affected by the wind, then shimmering its tip this way and that, as if it itself were a tongue that could speak. It brought out its voice and said, When I left Circe, who kept me more than a year, at a spot not far from Gaeta, before Aeneas named it that, neither any affection for my son, nor any reverence toward my old father, nor the debt of love I owed to Penelope, which would have pleased her, could vanquish the ardor inside me that wanted to experience the why world, including all the vices and heroics of humanity. So I set out on the deep open sea with only one ship and just such few companions who had not abandoned me. I saw one coast, then another all the way out to Spain, even as far as Morocco, as well as the island of Sardinia and the other islands that bathe in that sea. I and my companions had gotten old and slow when we made it to the narrow strait where Hercules had marked off the warning limits beyond which men shouldn't venture. Off the starboard side, I took my leave of Seville, and off the port, I had already taken my leave of Ceuta. Oh, brothers, I said, who through a hundred thousand dangers have made it to the west, to this last little bit of readiness that still hangs on in our senses, 
do not deny yourselves the experience on beyond the sun of an unpeopled world. Give full credit to your origins. You were not created to live like beasts, but to live in the search for virtue and knowledge. I made my companions so impassioned with my little speech for the journey ahead, I could hardly have held them back from it. We set our stern toward the sunrise and turned our oars into wings for our mad flight always gaining our way on the port side. All the stars that surround the Antipodes already glimmered in the night, while our own from back home were so low they didn't even rise above the ocean's floor. Five times we had seen the light beneath the moon wax and wane since we'd started on this high pass. When a mountain rose up, Still dim in the distance, it seemed to me I'd never seen any taller. We let out cries of joy, although they soon morphed into grief. For a whirlwind came out of that new land and struck the prow of the ship. Three times it spun the ship around in all that water. At the fourth, our stern reared up to a height and the prow went plunging down as it pleased another until the sea shot tight over us. Now that's a speech. That is a speech that brings the canto to an end and I will argue brings the entire poem to a dead halt. Let's look at the speech itself in this episode. Let's take it apart and just see what Ulysses is up to without much of an interpretive framework. I want to talk about the way the passage works into the larger rubric of the canto, and I want to give you first some historical background. It's May of 1291. We're in Genoa, It is a busy port town that supplies a great deal of the goods through both Provence and through Tuscany and northern Italy and even on up to the Holy Roman Empire. Two brothers who are merchants in that town, Vandino and Ugolino Vivaldi, are, shall we say, rather restless types. They're always up for some sort of adventure. And on this day, in May of 1291, they decide they're going to sail to India. They set out from Genoa, trying to find a route by water. The land route to India is known. They're trying to find a water route 200 years before Columbus. They sail down the Mediterranean cross through the Straits of Gibraltar, and go down the Moroccan coast. They are last seen in Cape Nun, which is way toward the bottom of modern-day Morocco. It is thought from there that they sail into the open Atlantic, and they are never heard from again. This is a story that Dante knows. This is one of the most famous stories in the Middle Ages. It becomes a warning tale of not 
sailing out, not going out beyond what can be known, not sailing where Ulysses here in this passage, in this monologue, sails to. Ulysses, without a doubt, has all kinds of historical reference with the Vivaldi brothers going on inside of his own speech, which itself is a masterpiece of poetry. So let's turn to it. The speech is almost fully set up in nine-line segments. Remember, Dante is writing in tercets, three-line stanzas, and Ulysses' speech is almost fully a set of three threes over and over again, nine lines, so three tercets that make up each of the parts of his speech. And we want to talk through these parts one by one. There's one tercet that's kind of by itself and lonely. We'll talk about why in a minute. It seems as if Dante is setting this up very intentionally. Let me just tell you that if you couldn't tell from my reading that, this is a masterpiece of poetry. It is a master class in poetic language. It is a master class in how to make poetry work. And it's a master class in plotting, in how to build suspense, how to build forward momentum into a plot. Remember last time I told you in the last episode that Lukash had claimed that Dante wrote the last epic and the first novel? This reads like a novel. It has suspense. It has suspended action. It has tantric structure. It has voice. It has point of view, perspective, or point of view. And it leads to a final point that is unassailable and also, um, what do I want to say, a true end point. It leads to an honest conclusion that derives directly from the story itself. All functions of novels. Here we go, the segments one by one. The bigger horn of the ancient flame began to quiver. Bigger. So remember, this flame, this this tongue of fire is actually split in two. And now we, for the first time, find out one side is larger than the other one. And we find out this is Ulysses. Diomedes is the smaller horn, the smaller split side. In Dante's poem, mostly bigger means grander. It means more important. Uh, the word is often used by Dante throughout comedy to mean more important, more virtuous later on when we get to Purgatorio and Paradiso, more more momentous. It's got, it's got a extra, as the kids say these days. It's extra, and this is indeed extra, and Ulysses is without a doubt extra. So the he's the bigger horn in this split flame, and it starts to quiver, murmuring as if it were affected by the wind. And now that I've read you the whole passage, it becomes very clear that this passage is wrapped up because the last bit of the monologue is the whirlwind that comes off the new land and breaks the ship. So here we have a little wind causing the flame to kind of flutter as it starts to speak, and then the passage ends with a whirlwind. That's not a mistake. It's showing us that this is a wrapped structure beginning with its first imagery and moving all the way back. And the horns of the flame, bigger and smaller. This is calling us to Gibraltar. It's, it's This thing is beautifully constructed. So it, it starts to quiver like it's been affected by the wind. And remember what comes at Pentecost? 
a mighty wind. And we've already had Pentecostal references here. So here's the flame dancing in the wind, shimmering its tip this way and that, as if it itself were a tongue that could speak. So indeed, these are tongues of fire. We've been talking about this, about Pentecost. We've been talking about the epistle of James in the New Testament, how the tongue is an infernal fire, an engine of fire. We've been talking about this all along. And in fact, here it's just laid out for us. This is a tongue of fire. And then the voice comes out of it. This voice of Ulysses, when I left Circe, and you'll notice that we are in the middle of Ulysses' journey. Hollander claims that Ulysses' speech here starts in Medius Race, like an epic, in the middle of things. I'm not sure I can go that far because what in Medius Race actually means is, yes, in the middle of things, but it means that the story is then going to circle back and explain the past and then get up to this moment. This feels like just in the middle of an ongoing plot and I've stepped into it. You know what it feels like? It feels like the opening of comedy. The middle of an ongoing plot that I have stepped into and we never fully circle back. If this were truly in Medius Race like an epic, then we, you know, Ulysses would go back and tell us about Troy and all that kind of stuff. Virgil's already done that for us earlier in the passage, so he doesn't need to. But also, again, it has this weird in the middle of things, but the past isn't really explored, just like the opening of comedy. When I left Circe, so Dante knows that plot node without knowing Homer. He knows that plot node from various writers. We talked about this last time, Cicero, Seneca, other writers, Horace. He knows the plot points of Ulysses. When I left Circe, who'd kept me for more than a year at a spot not far from Gaeta before Aeneas named it that, that's the first nine lines. And it, it ends there, although that, again, is not yet a complete sentence. I think it ends there because of the reference to Aeneas. Aeneas and Ulysses are compared over and over again, both in Virgil's epic, the Aeneid, and in fact, here too. There is a huge difference between them. If you remember, Ulysses comes home with basically nobody in Homer, but here he clearly comes home with one ship and a few companions. Dante's getting those details, by the way, from Ovid's story of Ulysses. Aeneas, by contrast, has an entire fleet and an entire army. And although Aeneas traces some of Ulysses' journey, for example, Circe, and other places, and Scylla and Charybdis, traces some of um, Ulysses' journey, nonetheless, Aeneas, of course, is successful, and Ulysses is not. So I would say that the first nine lines bring us back to Virgil, back to Aeneas, back to the notion of epic, and then we descend into the real reasons. Ulysses tells us his motivation. Neither any affection for my son. And by the way, you should know there's an interpretive problem here. That could be Telemachus, the son you know from the Odyssey. It also could be the son he has by Circe, which Dante knows from other sources. It's probably that son, but eh, it's hard to know. Dante may know Telemachus, but there's no reason to think that the Homeric node is here. Although reverence for my old father is there, and although Penelope is there. Neither any affection for my son, nor any reverence for my old father, nor the debt of love I owe to Penelope, which would have pleased her. You should hear right there. He's a bit of a jerk. He's got an ego on him. This one's got a big ego, right? So, you know, I listen, all the lovemaking I was going to do to Penelope, which, man, she'd be happy with, 
Ew. Nonetheless, think back to the opening of this passage. Remember that rustic guy plowing his field or planting his vineyards and tending them? Remember that bit about the fireflies coming out? What is that guy? He's happy and pleased to be in the place where he is. What is Ulysses? He's not pleased to be in the place where he is. This little bit calls us back to that opening reference of the rustic waiting for the fireflies to come out at night. That guy's contented to be home. (laughs) Not Ulysses. Nothing could keep me there, he says. Nothing could vanquish, as the passage says, the ardor inside me. And the word there is adore in the Florentine. It literally means burning. So it is his very nature. He right now is enacting his own very nature as this tongue of fire. And even then, he was on fire. Why? Because he wanted to experience, as he says, the wide world, all the vices and heroics of humanity. You should know that Dante is quoting Horace here from the Ars Poetica. He's quoting the notion of Ulysses as a man who wanted to experience the full range of humanity. But we should also say that to use a Yiddish term, that Ulysses has spielkes. <laughs> spielkes is a word my husband uses to mean uh, ants in the pants. You know, when you can't sit down, you can't settle anywhere, you're getting up and down and up and down and up and down. Well, let me tell you, Ulysses has got spielkes coming out the wazoo, as we would say in Yiddish. He's not settling in any way. Why? Because I want to experience the wide world and all the vices and heroics of humanity. So I set out on the deep open sea with only one ship, and just such few companions who had not abandoned me. This is, again, part of Ovid's exploration of Ulysses. That is the one ship remaining after Circe and a few companions not all dead. So, again, not out of the Homeric sources, but out of here, the Ovid sources. These nine lines essentially tell us Ulysses' motivation. His motivation is to experience the wide world. Think of the Vivaldi brothers. Think of the modern age. (laughs) Ulysses is the modern man. He is setting out to experience that which cannot be experienced, cannot be known, and he's also wanting the full range of the human experience, and so he leaves home. Next nine lines. I saw one coast. Then the other, all the way out to Spain, even as far as Morocco, Ulysses says, as well as the island of Sardinia and the other islands that bathe in that sea. So look at this. It's so set up as the Mediterranean, as if he's sailing kind of around the Mediterranean. Certain critics claim that perhaps he circumnavigates the Mediterranean, given the order here, Spain, Morocco, and then back to Sardinia. I don't know. Uh, I don't know that that's what that means. I don't know that that's what Dante's intending. But certainly he is sailing in the Mediterranean and sailing out toward Gibraltar. I and my companions, and this is where it gets so poignant, I and my companions had gotten old and slow. They're old men out to find the world. We made it to the narrow strait where Hercules had marked off the warning limits beyond which men shouldn't venture. The gates of Hercules, Gibraltar, we got that far. On the starboard side, I took my leave of Seville off the port. I'd already taken my leave of Ceuta. I mean, they're sailing out through Gibraltar and 
into the wide world. This is a masterful bit of plotting because we can feel geography as doom. And where are we? We're in hell, where geography is doom. In fact, this plotting of kind of delaying and as we're going out and we were told like Hercules marked off the warning limits beyond which men, and it is men, it's gendered in the Florentine. I left it that way. I didn't want to at first. I thought uh, limits beyond which humanity shouldn't venture, but it is gendered in the Florentine. Listen, we might as well take the poem as it stands. So that's what it does say. But this notion, right, that we're going to go with <laughs> Star Trek. We're going to go where no one has gone before. We're going to go out and beyond the limits, even that the gods have marked off for us, or at least that Hercules has marked off for us. And you may know this or not, in the Middle Ages, Hercules is typically a symbol for Jesus. They're connected, the warrior, the person who can overcome the limits of the flesh, all of that notion of Hercules is bound up in an image of Jesus in a lot of medieval iconography. So that Hercules is set here in Dante's poem, it gives it a little Jesus ring to it, even though you and I might not hear that anymore. And now the next nine lines, the speech he gives to his companions. Oh, brothers. Oh, let's just stop right there. Brothers. Such a loaded word. Oh, brothers who through a hundred thousand dangers have made it to the West. And the word in the Florentine is, is, is Occident, who have made it to the Occident. I mean, they are sailing West. We have passed the limits of what anyone could know. We're old, we're frail, we're feeble. We just have a little less bit of readiness that is still hanging in our senses. Oh man, I feel this so much the older I get. Do not deny yourselves the experience on beyond the sun of an unpeopled world. Good grief. This speech, it is lofty. It is exhilarating. You feel it in your bones. I, I read this bit and I hear the poem from Emily Dickinson. Exultation is the going of an inland soul to sea, past the houses, past the headlands, into deep eternity. Bred as we among the mountains, can a sailor understand the divine intoxication of the first league out from land? That's it. That's that Dickinson is basically here. I mean, she, they, I don't, I don't know that she knows Dante, and I don't know that she's quoting Dante. But I mean, it's the same sense of that you are headed out. Long years ago, Bruce and I worked <laughs> cooking shows on cruise ships. Yes, believe it or not, on all of America, we got a really nice cruise. That's how I ended up in. Pitcairn Island and how I ended up on Easter Island, places that I never would have got to on my own. So we worked these cruise ships and did cooking shows on them. And I want to tell you that every time we left the first port, 
I would stand at the back of the ship and repeat that Dickinson poem. Exultation is the going of an inland soul to sea. Because it's just this sense of setting out into the vast nothingness. And Ulysses says, give full credit to your origins. What he says, actually, is give full credit to your seed. That reference to seed, to insemination, pulls us back to the gates of Troy. Remember, the Trojans were inseminated out of the gates of Troy in Virgil's speech and into the world to go found Rome. This is wrapping back to what Virgil said in terms of its imagery. Give full credit to your origins. You, you could potentially say give full credit to your fathers, but it's, it's, it is, in fact, semen. That's what it is. Give full credit to your origins. You were not created to live like beasts. There's a reference to Circe. What did Circe do to them? She turned them into beasts. And Ulysses, uh, in the tellings that Dante knows, has to save some of his companions and get them turned back. And he does this through either pleasing Circe in some way or a magic charm that he has in various sources. But this is what Circe does to them. You were not created. Oh, created. Wow, there's a word for you, right? From Ulysses. He's almost quoting the Bible. You were not created to live like the beasts, but to live in the search for virtue and knowledge. This speech he gives, nine lines of it, is stirring, emotional, beautiful, compact. He's appealing to them, look, old men, we got one last chance. We got one last chance not to just fade away like an animal, but to live in the search for virtue and knowledge. And then we have a lone tercet by itself, in which Ulysses seems to address Virgil and Dante the Pilgrim. I had my companions so impassioned, he says, with my little speech for the journey I had, I could hardly have held them back from it. Wow, there's another little moment of jerkitude, of being a jerk. My little speech. It's not a little speech. Those nine lines are loaded. They are unbelievably dramatic. They, are, they, they, they would impassion anyone, particularly a man facing his own death. Hey, you got one last chance to make a difference. Let's make that difference. That's basically what he's saying. And this isn't a little speech. This is a big speech. And it seems as if right here, Ulysses in this single three-line tercet, this little bit right here, it seems as if he turns from the story toward Virgil and the pilgrim and almost winks at them. Like, <laughs> catch that. I mean, I pulled that one off and, you know, I made them so impassioned, there was no way I could have stopped what happened to us then. And then we come to the voyage itself in the next nine lines. We set our stern toward the sunrise. It's so evocative. It's so beautiful. We set our stern toward the sunrise. We are sailing away from everything we know and turned our oars into wings for our mad flight, always gaining our way on the port side. That may be a little confusing. What he is meaning there is that they are moving southwesterly. So the port 
side. They're, they're moving into the west, but because they're turned toward the southwest, it appears as if the port side is always kind of in the lead, always gaining our way on that port side. They're, fly, they're, they're flying in their mad flight southwesterly. There is no question you shouldn't, in the words mad flight, hear Daedalus and his wings. This is all part of the mad flight. It is got a Daedalus reference behind it, sitting back behind it. And this voyage, you'll notice, this is the last time the sun happens. We set our stern toward the sunrise. So the, they're moving away from the east, turned our oars, and now they go on. And it seems as if the rest of the journey almost happens without the sun. Where did we start? At that time of year with our peasant, at summer's height, when the thing that illumines the world hides its face the least from us. Where were we in full sunlight? Where are we here? Mostly in the darkness. All the stars that surround the Antipodes, Ulysses says, already glimmered in the night, while our own from back home were so low they didn't even rise above the ocean's floor. So they're seeing new stars. Like, like when you cross the equator, they have crossed the equator now, and they're going on. Five times we had seen the light beneath the moon wax and wane since we'd started on this high pass. These nine lines are the voyage. It takes five months. So five times we saw the light of the moon wax and wane, and they've crossed the equator. Let's just stop. Dante knows the world is round. Dante does not believe the world is flat. You get that, that there is a notion here that the world is a sphere, not, not flat. Only the idiots in that Spanish court really thought the world was flat by this point. I mean, listen, Greek geometry had already proved the spherical nature of the earth. Dante knows it too. They're sailing to the southwest. The Vivaldi brothers knew it too. They sailed out of the gates of Gibraltar to find an ocean way to India around the world 200 years before Columbus. It's, it's some of those Idiots in those courts who got all bound up in a religious fervor that made them take the Bible literally and believe that the world was flat. But any rational person, even Dante, knows the world is a sphere. And there they go. This is the whole five-month voyage in nine lines. The stars are not the same as they were at home. It seems like the moon is there. It's coming and going. Again, It doesn't it seem like the whole journey is happening kind of at night? Dante knows this spherical Earth is the center of the universe, but he knows that the sun goes around the Earth. That is absolutely what he knows. But in this case, it just seems as if the sun has set on them. And we probably should take that as an interpretive moment inside the speech. Okay, now it's end. When a mountain rose up, still dim in the distance, it seemed to me I'd never seen any taller. In fact, it is the tallest mountain on earth. We let out cries of joy. I mean, they've, oh my gosh, we, we found land. We found something that no one has ever seen before. And in fact, they are the first living people to have seen this land. We'll talk about this in a minute. Since Adam and Eve. We let out cries of joy, although they soon morphed into grief for a whirlwind 
came out of that new land and struck the prow of the ship. A whirlwind is, of course, a very stereotypical punishment of God. Three times it spun the ship around in all that water. And at the fourth, oh man, our stern reared up to a height and the prow went plunging down as it pleased another. There's Ulysses' grudging bow to God as it pleased another until the sea shut tight over us. If you're reading this for the first time, you have no idea what just happened. They sailed out from Gibraltar. They sailed five months in the open ocean. They came across a giant mountain. A whirlwind came out and down they went. What you don't know is you haven't perhaps read all of comedy. This is Mount Purgatory. This is where purgatory happens. And at the top of Mount Purgatory sits the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve are driven out of the Garden of Eden, they're driven off the top of Mount Purgatory and out into the larger world. This then would be the first time a living human has seen purgatory since Adam and Eve. And they have arrived here in an inappropriate way. You're supposed to come to purgatory after you die. And in fact, when we get to the purgatorio, we'll find out how that works. And there is a distinct way it works that you get to Mount Purgatory. But if you don't know the poem and you don't know what's ahead in the poem, then this is just darn strange. On the other side of the world, there is a huge mountain. And I just encourage you to think about it as strange. Because listen, if you're looking at any translation right now, but and along with this podcast, the, the notes in the translation are telling you, oh, this is Mount Purgatory, this is Mount Purgatory. And I always think it does a disservice. I mean, I've told it to you too. But I always think it's a disservice. This should sit here as weird. What in the world is this mountain? What is going on? What mountain could this possibly be? You have to read the poem to know what mountain it is. Nobody else in Dante's day necessarily thinks purgatory is a mountain. That's a Dantean concept. There are some who do believe there is a mountain of purgatory, but we'll get to that. We'll get to purgatorio. But mostly, nobody necessarily thinks purgatory is a mountain. You wouldn't know what this is, and you should let this sit as a strange bit. This whole thing turns round and round into increasing opacity from Ulysses' very detailed description of both his home life, his motivation, his speech, the journey, and it gets less and less clear. The sun fades out. And then if you don't know Dante's poem, you end up at this place that is so strange. What in the world is going on? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. Something very interesting. Do you realize that this is the first death in inferno we have been in a poem about the dead the damned dead but the dead no one else has died in front of our eyes this is the first time francesca at the end of her big speech what does she say that day we read no further she ends with basically paolo with going to bed with paolo uh, pierre de la Vagna, what does he say you know, the court intrigue made me though just unjust to myself that's so flowery and beautiful that's his suicide but doesn't really say what his death is. This is the first time we've actually seen someone die. In a poem about death, 
You got to wait 26 cantos to get a death in, <laughs> in a poem about the afterlife. It's so strange. And this is why the speech is so dramatic, because it ends with their death. It doesn't end with their condemnation. It doesn't necessarily end with, you know, they don't fall down into this whirlpool and go to Minos and get shoved down here to the eighth pit of the eighth circle of fraud. No, it ends with their drowning. The sea shut tight over us. We have this image in our heads of these men in this ship drowning in the open water. And that's where it stops. Yes, of course, Ulysses says, as it pleased another. Of course, we hear the judgment from God there. But at the same time, we are left with the image of this capacious ego, <laughs> this giant figure from classical literature, this thing that Dante could never know, that he's always wanted to know, Ulysses. He's read everything secondhand about Ulysses from other people building off Homer. This thing that Dante, the poet, couldn't know, here it is, and it's drowned in front of us. This shows you why this passage brings the comedy to a dead halt, because this speech by Ulysses is so gorgeous that it ends at a place of irredeemable ending as a narrative, not just as judgment and theology. Pull the theology out of it for just a second and think about it as a piece of writing. Think about it as a poem. This is dramatic, gorgeous poetry. I'm not going to read Ulysses' speech again because we're going to have two more episodes and we're going to have a lot of reading of this bit from Ulysses. So come back. Next episode up is the case against Ulysses. Why is he here? Why is he damned? If he's so glorious, if he's so fabulous, even though he's a little bit of a jerk, if he's so fabulous, why is he here? What is the case against him? And I want to build that case by references to Lucan. I want to build that case out of the speech itself. Then we'll follow that up with an episode in which we will give the case for Ulysses, because Ulysses is surely someone who deserves the case made for him. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it. Please do those things. I would much appreciate it. And come back. We got more Ulysses. Oh, it just gives me goosebumps. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. I'll see you soon.